This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Have you ever heard the phrase, people in therapy are often in therapy to deal with the people in their lives who won't go to therapy? That's true. Today, we have an honest conversation about this topic. What can I do to live a happy and healthy life when the person that I'm partnered with is struggling with their mental health or addiction? You're listening to Honest Women, the podcast for every woman who's trying to juggle the relationships, roles, and responsibilities that come with modern womanhood and finding it all just a little harder than she thought it would be. We're your hosts, Andrea Berkeley and Jessica Hutchison, your new besties who just happen to be therapists. And while we believe that life is hard and there's no tip or trick that will solve that, it does get just a little bit easier when we can be real with each other and talk about it honestly. You're listening to Honest Women. Hey, Jess. Hey, Andrea. Okay, that's so funny. (laughs) We're trying to do a new thing. Okay, I don't know if you guys noticed. Where we refer to one another by name at the beginning of the episode, and it's so easy with your name. Because you can shorten it. Yeah, it's shortened so nicely. I'm not like, hey, Jessica, right? I know, because then you have three syllables, Jessica. Right, which is what's happening with my name. Andrea. God, Hi, Andrea. Right. I don't really have a short name. No, you don't? No. My family growing up, my dad would call me Anne. Mm, which is mm-hmm. fine. Um, it doesn't really fit me though. Mm-mm. And then for a while, because it was the 90s, I was Andy. Oh yeah. Everybody added an IE. That's very yes. Italian too. Yes. The IE. And there was something kind of like it felt edgy. You're a girl with a boy's name. That was total 90s. Right? Yeah. Yeah. In college, I was Dr. Dre. So, so yeah. many questions about that. As well, there should be. But we won't get into it. <laughs> That's phenomenal. That just made my whole day. Well, I love rap. I know you do. Who I love. It? I love I, rap. I love rap music. Do you know what is probably my greatest accomplishment right now? What? We were driving with my kids and listening to Ice Ice Baby. My 10-year-old can rap the entire thing. It's hysterical. Wow. She also can rap Eminem's Lose Yourself. Oh, that's good. Before anybody judges me, remember when you you could actually listen to clean music because it was the radio? So we listened to the eight-mile version, so there's no – I don't even yes. know if they're discussing in the original. I can't yes. remember, but we listened to that one. We have had some really awkward moments lately because my son, my oldest son's getting into rap, which I love, and I totally support. But like you're saying, when we were growing up – yeah. If there was a song on the radio, it was edited, right? And so a lot of the rap that I listened to as part of my like rebellion, but also then realized that I loved it, was heavily, heavily edited. You know what's really awkward? Putting on what you now know is the unedited version of Ludacris. Which one were we listening to? Oh, Area Codes. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I'm like, listen, buddy, I did not know. I did not 
Anyway. And remember, in order to buy the non-edited version, you had to be a certain age. Was it 16? That's what I was ta- I was explaining this to him. I'm like, yeah. Look, I'm turning on the explicit settings in Spotify because you just need to do the work and find the edited versions. Because when I was your age and I wanted to listen to a rap song, I listened to it on the radio and recorded it with my cassette. Or you would have to go and get a CD from a CD store. It's like blowing his mind. With the explicit sticker on the front. Yeah. That was the political movement of our youth was getting the explicit sticker on the front of those CDs. The good old days. The good old days. Remember, it was like that was like intense political action in our youth. It was. It was. But that's what you had to be 16. You had to show your your driver's license in order to buy the explicit CD or have a parent buy it for you or an adult, right? right. Like, oh, Jess, you... I did not buy an explicit CD. Oh, you know girl. that I grew up very religious. And my first two albums were Jagged Little Pill. Oh, good one. Yes. And Coolio. Um that's the other one my daughter can rap, Gangster's really? Paradise. Oh, I love Gangster's Paradise. Okay. Well, one day, that is one of my favorite songs of all time. Because it's the best song. It's the actual best song, and I definitely I listened to it, it this morning. It's I never love gonna it. be never going to be not good. Oh, it's such a good song, and it's clean. <sighs> it is clean. It's clean. It's See, actually the whole full, song is actually clean. Full fucking circle, Jess. That's what See? I say to that. See? We went there. <laughs> We did. Also, I just want to listen to some 90s rap right now. You're going to feel better. Maybe that's the point of this episode. Whatever ails you, whatever really impossible, difficult life circumstance you're facing, the answer, the only answer we can give you is 90s rap. (laughs) That is our recommendation for all people listening. If you're having a bad day, put on a little Coolio and just go there. Actually, this is going to be a tough transition now. I know. I know. Okay. This is hard. Mm-hmm. There's a reason that we've been like just low-key avoiding it as we get <laughs> into this. Also, we love rap. But it's a hard one. Mm-hmm. Let me just tell you what happened. So we got an email from one of our beloved, beloved Honest Women listeners a couple months ago. Actually, were we low-key avoiding answering this question for a couple months? Maybe? Yes, we were. Okay. To our listener who wrote in. We want to get this right for you. So it took us a little while. Can I add the caveat of why we avoided yeah, it a little please. bit? Okay. So a part of it was having our own personal experiences with somebody who struggled with addiction. Yeah, and mental health. So, And mm-hmm. mental health, right? And so we like to be personal and transparent about things, right? So I think for both of us... The avoidance was, do we go the clinical route? Do we go the professional route? What we know, or do we go the personal route? Do we want to go there? That's the struggle. Yes. And before we get back to the email, did you guys know that you can email us at any time? We have an email address, hello at honestwomenpodcast.com. And you can ask us your questions. And even if we have to low-key avoid them for a little while because they're really tender and we want to get them right, we will answer them. Yes, we will. First, we'll answer your email. And then we will thoughtfully answer your question or your concern or your hot topic or whatever it is that you want to hear from us. We will do it on this podcast. We really do want this to be a community and a conversation that includes you. Okay. So this is the email that we got. I was wondering if you could do an episode on being married to an addict or a partner with a mental health issue and how we can cope as wives. Yeah, it's a big one. 
It's a big one because I remember reading it the first time and actually as you read through it, I have goosebumps mm-hmm. because it was a very short and to the point email, but I could also feel her helplessness through yeah. the words. Yeah. I could just feel it. Yeah. And I get this question a lot in my therapy practice. I work with people, with women especially, that are just the most amazing, most kick-ass, holding it down women who are dealing with this issue in their own marriage. And who come in, and I don't know if this happens with you, Jess, but sometimes they come in and they apologize. Like, oh, "Oh, I'm I'm sorry. Like, I'm such a broken record. I'm like, first of all, you and all humans. (laughs) Sorry. Did you expect to have like new content every week? No. But sometimes the things in our lives that are so hard to deal with, they're not one and done traumas. A lot of times they are having to do with people in our lives that are struggling and trying to figure out how to live when that is Mm. your situation. Oh, yeah. So- Let's talk about this issue a little bit. Where do you want to begin? Um, I want to begin with a little bit of a sense of why might someone find themselves in this situation? I just think that we're so hard on ourselves. We say, how did I do this? Why did I make this mistake? And that doesn't really serve you. Nobody wakes up and says, I want to have an addiction issue or a mental health issue. And also nobody wakes up and says, I want to marry a partner with an addiction or mental health issue. You didn't know. And we just want to have so much compassion for whatever it was that brought you to that relationship. A lot of times in our 20s, you have a lot of not healthy patterns and behaviors in people. And it's gotten worse over the decades, right? It's not great. So it is really easy to look at a partner and say, oh, well, they're doing the exact thing that everybody else around them is doing. As soon as they get older, it will change. Right. It is very easy to be naive. Totally. Because we got a lot of evidence to support that what they're doing at that time is okay. Yeah. Like, oh, it's just a phase. We all binge drink, right? To be fair, I did. I did too. Yeah. So it's very culturally when we have a society of excess, you know, we go, oh, we'll just grow up. Well, guess what? A fair portion of people don't. And they carry that behavior through their lives. Also, to be fair, sometimes these things develop after the fact. I was just thinking that too. It doesn't mean it was there initially. Right. Especially with mental health issues. Oh, yeah. Even like very serious mental health diagnoses often don't happen until someone's in their 20s. You might already be in love with them or it might have been managed and now it's not. Also, I think sometimes if you grow up in a house where there isn't alcohol or drug use or there isn't a mental health issue, you kind of don't know what to look for. True. And then if you grow up in a house where there was, you learn to caretake. You might feel like if you just do a good enough job, then they will get better. Mm -hmm. You learn that at a really young age. It can feel comfortable. For sure. So, I mean, logic could say, no, I don't like this, but the emotion, the young child in us could be like, ooh, this feels comfortable. Yeah, this is what I know. This is what I know. So there's a lot of reasons why someone might be in this situation, struggling with addiction or mental health issues and why they're not getting help. And there's also a lot of reasons why you might be partnered with someone who has addiction or mental health issues. So let's talk about what now. There's a lot of things you can't do. Let's start with the things that you cannot do. 
it brings up the idea or the concept of free will. And I think free will is such an important concept for people to understand. Mm-hmm. You cannot force somebody. You cannot shame them into. You cannot bully them into getting mm-hmm. help. It doesn't work. It has to be their choice. Now, I will say I have some strong thoughts and opinions about how we treat addiction in our country. It's very different than a lot of other countries. I'm drawing a little bit from Gabor um, Matei's work in addiction. He's fantastic. I really enjoy how he speaks to addiction. But one thing that he's called out in American addiction culture is that we don't bring families in. Mm -hmm. And I see this actually more now from a mental health standpoint, and I'm I'm not for it, of shutting families out of care because Mm -hmm. your family is your support, right? Your Mm -hmm. partner is your support. They have to be included in that process and they have to understand how to support you. And also they need to be told how to support themselves. Yeah. And we don't see that often. It's just more Mm -hmm. like pluck the person, put them in some treatment, fix it, put them back and it should be okay. Right. And that, my friends, is a beautiful fantasy. Right. So you can't make someone go and do X, Y, and Z. And you can't just expect to like snap your fingers or they snap their fingers and fix it. And you can't do someone else's healing and you definitely don't want to become their therapist. No. So we walk a really fine line here where we go helping someone with addiction or helping someone with a mental health concern is a community type thing that you are a part of when you're married to that person and you're not responsible for their healing. You can't make it happen. You can't be their therapist. You can't take it all on. It's tough. It is really tough. Not to mention when you talk about that, it's a community thing. My first thought was, and what's hard is because it's stigmatized. So what will my friends think if they know? What will my children's friends' families think? Will they judge? There's such ripple effects that aren't Mm -hmm. always positive that can impact the choice that somebody makes to get help. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you definitely can't go onto Facebook and put your spouse on blast and be like, well, Tim's relapsed again. I mean, you can, but I can't. I'm putting it in the can't column. I'm asking you not to. Please please don't do that. No, 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 please don't. Right. And yet we have to find a way to find community. Two other things that come up so often in this conversation, especially in my therapy room. Mm. One is I'll be working with somebody who has a spouse struggling with addiction or a mental health issue, and they have children with that person. And they'll ask things like, well, how do I make sure my children are not harmed by their behavior? (laughs) And that's one thing you can't do. I was just, I didn't mean to laugh openly, but I kind of chuckled because it's kind of, There's no easy answer and Mm -hmm. you actually can't, right? It's another, yeah. Right. You cannot completely take away the impact of someone's addiction issues and the behaviors that go along with that or their mental health struggle if it is not addressed. You cannot do that. There will be implications, right? And can we just back up a second and notice that we're not supposed to live lives that are free of distress? Thank you. Yes, We are never supposed, that is not the line of being a good parent, that there's no distress or bad things that happen in your lives or in your family. That's not realistic. So that can't be our goal, you know, to make sure that my kids don't end up in therapy. Shit, just start saving for your kids' therapy. Totally. 
it's not a marker of good parenting. To be honest, I'm yeah. literally being honest. I have a really hard time connecting with people who don't have shit in their past. Right. Like I, I just don't, con- I don't know. I just feel like it, it can give you such a deeper understanding of human behavior and create compassion and empathy in areas where other people don't have it. So right. not all quote unquote bad situations that you experience as a child create bad things in adulthood. Sometimes they actually create beautiful personality traits like empathy, compassion, Mm -hmm. understanding, resiliency, all of these. Absolutely. And I also just want to make sure that our listeners hear that if you're asking me, how can I moderate the impact of what's happening in our home for my children? I will tell you, you're already doing it. Totally. All of the research that's done on adverse childhood experiences says that all a child needs is one healthy, safe adult. You are that person. That does not mean you have to be perfect. But you cannot take away the things that are happening. You can't make them like not know what's happening. But you can be a person who is doing your best to be safe and stable and available. And you can only do that if you take care of yourself. Yes. And that is enough, by the way. That is enough for your kids. Also, therapy. It's fine. It's fine. So let's talk about what you can do. Before we jump into all of this stuff, I just want to note, this may feel impossible if you're in a crisis situation, okay? So let's say that you have a spouse with a very serious mental health diagnosis and they are in a bad way. And we're talking about trying to keep someone out of the hospital or trying to get someone into the hospital, talking about trying to keep somebody alive. Or you've got a spouse that has an addiction issue and it has gone off the rails. We are on a bender, or they have just sold your wedding rings for drug money. Like, okay, Mm -hmm. this may feel impossible in that moment. And it's really important that you start to get to this stuff as soon as possible because you are worthy of time and care. And so we can't put this off forever. There might be a part of you that is caretaking to a too great of an extent that's taking this all on your shoulders, that's perpetually saying, I can't do anything for me because of this situation, that part is wrong. And we need to lovingly say, nope, I got to do these things. So what can people do, Jess? I just want to say that was beautifully stated. And it's also really important to, to just differentiate between a crisis, right, and a not crisis. Because I think in a time of crisis, you actually should act. You should take right. that person somewhere. And so I'm glad you added that that caveat because it's diff- it's different from every day versus a true crisis situation when the person is right. truly at danger. When we talk about what we can do, I am a firm, firm believer and lover of group therapy. After losing my dad to suicide, I went to a number of therapists who checked the grief box on Psychology Today. Had no idea. They shouldn't have been practicing in that arena. That kind of negatively impacted me. However, it Mm -hmm. did lead me to finding a group for survivors of a suicide loss. And I will forever Mm -hmm. say that that was the one thing that single-handedly helped me more than anything else. Because when Mm -hmm. you can sit in a room with other people and literally say anything about your experience and have people nod their heads with a level of understanding that you can't get in the outside world, whew, 
There is nothing like it. That is a big one. And what we can do Mm -hmm. is seek out groups, organizations, resources to find other people that are struggling with something that you yourself are also struggling with. Yes, yes. There are groups for if your partner is struggling with addiction, if your partner is struggling with alcoholism versus drug addiction. There's also groups for your kids. Yeah. Right? Growing up in a home like that. So those are all 12-step programs. They all have these groups and we can link some resources in the show notes. There are also, there are family support groups through NAMI, for example, for people who are living with and loving somebody who has a mental health issue. So you are not alone. And being in a room with other people who are dealing with these things, it's going to help a lot with that stigma and it's going to help a lot with your isolation. It's really, really important. I love that you brought that up. Also, individual therapy is important, but like Jessica said, you've got to find the right individual therapist. So do your due diligence, man. Interview this person. Also, if you start to feel like your therapist is expecting you to do something, so mm-hmm. let's say you're married to somebody who is an alcoholic and you start to feel like your therapist is like, well, come on, just get a divorce. Come on, just do this. When you start to feel like your therapist is trying to push you into action or you feel like they're getting tired of you, this is different than being nervous about that. But if you start to feel that in your sessions, like it's time to find a new therapist. Agree. Because that's not helpful. You're going to get that in your real life. Also in your real life, you need to maintain connection with people, right? Ideally, oh man, The ideal would be that you do have some people in your life who know what's going on and are willing to offer you that support. You know, maybe it's taking your spouse to a therapy appointment or a treatment program or, you know, maybe they just know things are bad and they bring you a meal or they help out with your kids or they let your kids have a sleepover or whatever. If you have those people in your life, lean on them. If you have a friend that you can be honest with, be honest with them. And just know this is why we recommend therapy. Sometimes people aren't great at holding that space. Sometimes people in your life do expect you to just get divorced already or whatever it is. They do roll their eyes when you bring up the same thing. And that's when you know you just want to give that relationship a little bit of a breather. Not that you need to not be a friend with that person or a family member with that person. It's just that you know that they're not your support for this season. But whatever you do, you can't be isolated. And I think another thing we can do is look at our own behaviors. Mm -hmm. So I have pointed out to people gently what is supportive and what is enabling. Mm -hmm. And that is a really important piece of it. And I think a lot of times when people are struggling with getting help and there's that fear, one of the fears can be loss. I'm going Mm -hmm. to lose people who love me if they know. And that's where being able to tell somebody that you will support them on that journey, if that's what you choose. Not everybody Mm -hmm. has to choose that, but if you want to stay with the person and it's a supporting them in their treatment, their recovery, their whatever you call it but also drawing a line of, but I can't continue to support this behavior. Boundaries are really hard. Oh yeah. Especially if you're naturally a caretaker. Right. Not easy. This is a different conversation if you are 
let's like let's say this isn't your spouse and it's it's an extended family member. Okay, it's easier yeah. to draw those boundaries. Being married to or being the parent of someone who's struggling with one of these things, it feels really, really hard to figure out what's supportive, what's enabling, what you can say no to, what you can actually not do. It's hard. It's confusing. And yet that's part of your work. You might also look at your own behavior and go, what am I willing to do with this person? So maybe you have someone who's struggling with substance use and you say, okay, we'll be sober at home. We don't keep alcohol in the house. I don't drink when we go out together. Maybe you're willing to do that. Or, you know, you have a spouse that's really depressed and you go, hey, we know exercise is actually as effective when done at a certain level as an antidepressant. And so instead of being like, you need to go to therapy, you need to go to be therapy, you need to go to therapy, you say, let's sign up for a 5K. Come on, let's go do it together. So you find ways to support that are actually helpful. So I do want to acknowledge that it's okay to expect change and it's okay for you to change. And it's okay to acknowledge that these things take time too. I think an important piece of it all And what I have seen within my own practice is when somebody feels helpless, they feel like they've tried to assist, support, and the person's just not budging. That to me is the crossroads where we decide to focus on ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that can be the one thing that we feel like we can control. And I've done this with women. I've worked with women on this before, where it's not saying I give up on you, I leave you, but how can I work on me? Mm -hmm. How can I work through a fear of abandonment that I've had my entire life? How can I work through the fear of losing this relationship? How can I work through how scary it is to draw a boundary? Mm -hmm. And truly, I have seen some individuals do amazing work on themselves that it took losing control or feeling like they couldn't control somebody else's behavior in order to focus on themselves. Yes. I think we'll have to end at the beginning here. The thing that we didn't mention before is that what you can do and what you have to do is you have to take care of yourself. This is very unsexy work. This is not the answer that people want to hear when they come into my office and they say, tell me what to do. They don't want to hear sleep every night, exercise every day. Come in and get the mental health support you need in therapy or in a group. Stay connected to people. Meditate. They don't want to hear those things. But when you're in a stressful situation, you need those things more than anybody else. And also, FYI, when you grew up in a stressful situation, your body needs these things more than anybody else. That is what we learned about adverse childhood experiences. So let's just say that you grew up in a home where addiction was an issue and now you're married to someone where addiction is an issue. Guess what? You're never not going to need to do these things. Never. Will these things change your situation? No. Will they change how you are inside your situation? Absolutely but they're not going to take away the struggle. And I think that one thing that people think sometimes in a really unrealistic way is they'll ask me or they'll ask you, how can I just be totally happy, like unbothered in this situation? You're not going to be, not unless you find a way to totally compartmentalize and disconnect. 
And I don't No, that's think not going to go that. anywhere good. No. So you will be taking care of yourself, taking care of your children, taking care of your partner to the extent that it's healthy in the way that we talked about and struggling. That's what it will be. So to the people who are listening to this episode, you might have noticed that we didn't cover one topic, which is what should I do? There is a reason that we are taught as therapists to not give advice. Because whether you stay in that relationship, whether you leave that relationship, however you handle that, we can't tell you what to do. It's complicated. But we can acknowledge that. We can acknowledge that it's complicated and it's layered and it means a lot and it's hard to go through. And hopefully you feel a little more understood and a little bit less alone, and a little bit more clear on how you could take good care of yourself by joining us for this honest conversation. You've just finished an episode of the Honest Women podcast. We are so honored that you would spend this time with us. We have so much more where this came from and don't want you to miss a minute. So please, right now, take a second to follow the show. While you're there, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It's the best way to help other women find our show so they can join the conversation. And if you have a friend who could use a little more honesty in her life, and who couldn't, send this episode directly to her. Actually, send this episode to anyone you want to. Everyone's welcome here. We'll be back next Wednesday speaking some truth and feeling some feels. Until then, hang in there, ladies. This has been Honest Women.